long reading there, and I hope you stuck with it. Um, what did you think? There is a Jesus uh, you may not have expected. He smashes the religious freaks, doesn't he? I mean, that's really what it's about. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. This isn't Jesus meek and mild. This is Christ unplugged. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. How do you react to such vehemence? Woe to you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs. This man of love, he's merciless, isn't he? You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Why is he so mad? Two reasons. Number one, the Pharisees are false. Number two, they're dangerous because people imitate them. Now, Nicodemus, if you were here last week, he was a Pharisee. Pharisees were walking illustrations of what obedience to God was supposed to mean. People watched them. They copied them. And so the Pharisees had influence, tremendous influence. They set the religious tone. What they did rippled out. And yet even though they taught the scriptures, they were false. Look at verse 3. Obey them, says Jesus, and do everything they tell you to, but do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. There's the core of the issue. They teach God's words, but they do not live by them even though they look very religious. What they've done is they've added to the Bible lots of commands and rituals. They've become obsessed with their own religiosity, their own outward rituals, but they have taken their eyes off what God wanted, and that's love. God wants obedience from the heart, doesn't he? But without the heart, of course, you can't sustain obedience. They became hypocrites, literally actors who honoured God with their lips, but whose hearts were far from him, which meant, verse 5, it was human praise they were looking for, not God's, you know, from the the length of the fringes on their prayer shawls uh, to the the place of prominence at the Jewish synagogue to the size of the leather boxes, the phylacteries that they'd actually tie onto their foreheads and onto their arms and into which they'd put scriptures, a very literal kind of interpretation of one law in the Old Testament. Uh, to the religious titles they used to exalt themselves. These titles should only be used of God, not of them. And yet they used them of themselves. Why are they doing it? They're effectively taking glory that belongs to God and the, and the Christ and claiming it for themselves. Now, I don't know what your reaction to a passage is like that, but my initial reaction is to think, Go, Jesus! You are the man! Stick it to the religious freaks! You know, we, um, we hate hypocrisy, don't we? You know, we love it when someone calls it for what it is, like Mac Horton, you know, up there, the Australian swimmer who early on in the Olympics, he, he called that rival swimmer a drug cheat. Apologies if anyone is here from China, right? But, um, tricky. But, you know, we hate cheats, don't we? And we love it when someone stands up and has the courage to call them out. Which is why, more seriously, it's wonderful that the Royal Commission here in Australia into the institutional abuse of children is exposing hypocrisy and cover-ups in priests. And this, their actions, which have been pure evil. Jesus would have applauded the Royal Commission. In fact, he's like the Royal Commissioner here, isn't he? 
Uh, he's exposing hypocrisy. He is the man. So my initial reaction is to say, go Jesus, you rock. Um, but then, you know, and I noticed this as the reading went on, everyone became a little bit more quiet. Because as he peels back the layers and he keeps kind of exposing layer after layer of hypocrisy, and he does so with such vehemence, there's a different reaction. And I begin to think, oh, wait a moment. Because what would Jesus say to me if I was in his firing line? You know, would I be squeaky clean if Jesus shone his spotlight on me? Probably not. In fact, absolutely not. Uh, Jesus' spotlight is more searching. It's much more revealing than any royal commission that we run. It examines not only outward actions, but our motivations, and then holds those up to God's standards, which then brings another reaction, and that's to wonder, well, what does it really mean to live a good life? You know, listening to this chapter, my reactions change from, go Jesus, to, oh, hang on, wait a moment, to, oh, what does it mean? You know, like, yeah, uh, you know, that sort of reaction. <laughs> what, I mean, why, what does it mean to live a good life? Most of us try our hardest and, um, you know, we like to think of ourselves as good. And we do little things, don't we? We, to assuage our consciences, to tell us that we're, we're going okay. We, we pass on Facebook posts, you know, of, on social justice. Send, you know, share. Um, now, that might be all we do on social justice, really, when it comes down to it. But at least, we, at least we care, don't we? We care enough to share. Not like those, the callous indifference of other selfish people out there. We, we're different, we say. Is that good enough? You know, would that be good enough for God if Jesus shone his spotlight onto you or to me? What does it mean to live a good enough life? Most people, if they thought about it, would say something like, well, you need to love your neighbor. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Obey the golden rule. Because people who try to live their life by this, they're decent people. They're good people. And to us, this is self-evidently true. Most religions have a version of this golden rule. Uh, my daughter's year three class uh, teacher at Black Forest Primary School she, you know, how teachers at the beginning of the year, they write up all their rules on the, on the, the board. She only had this one, the one rule for all the year. Um, you know, do to other people what you would have them do to you. It was, that was enough. She's not a Christian lady. I know her personally, and she'd be happy with me saying that. And I think it is self-evidently true. A society functions at its best when people look out for one another, not just themselves. In fact, people who contribute to the lives of other people report higher levels of happiness than those who live just for themselves. But there's an issue, uh, two issues actually. First of all, when most people hear this command, love your neighbor, most of us reduce that command. We translate it as don't cause other people harm. That's not the same, that's reducing it. That's part of the command. But the original command is much more than not just harming people. It's proactively doing good to people, the good that we would want them to do to us. So number one, what we do is we reduce that command. Number two, and more importantly, it's only half the answer. We heard it in the reading. Um, when Jesus summarized what God requires of us, 
Okay, so he's summarizing all the 613 laws of the Old Testament here, very helpfully. Summarizes it down to two. The commandment to love your neighbor is the second commandment. There's a prior commandment, a commandment even more important than that second one. The commandment, the first one, to love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your heart, with all your mind. Jesus says that's the first and the greatest commandment. Implication, if you live your life forgetting that one and you only focus on the second and then often poorly, not only is that inadequate, it is unbelievably offensive to God because it's ignoring God, the, you know, the God who made you and me, the, the God who made us relate to him, not, with, not just with love, but to love him with the totality of our beings. That is what it means to be human, to be made in God's, Im God's image, yet we ignore him. Have you ever been ignored? Can you think of a moment, you know, in your life when you were consciously ignored? Um, I remember once sitting down in a circle with other people at a backyard party. And I didn't know people in the party. I was feeling a little kind of awkward being there, but I joined the circle uh, with people that I didn't really know. But then the host of the party came. I can't believe this. She sat down right in front of me. And she just cut me out of the circle. And it was obvious to everyone there what she had done. That she was just being unbelievably rude as the host to me. Well, I mean, what do I do? I'm sitting there in a backyard, right, in a circle where I'm just, I'm, she's, her back is inches from my face. Um, do I say to the host, oh, excuse me, <laughs> you might not have realized. No, she knew exactly what she was doing. I just felt so ashamed. So I, I got up and I, I left. I drove home. It was an hour and a half home. I'd gone all the way there to the party. I was just ignored. It's an awful feeling, isn't it? Well, it's terrible to ignore someone, but get this, God just isn't our guest at our party. He is our creator who made us for the purpose of facing him, not with our backs to him, but facing him for relationship with him. So you see the farce of thinking that if only we love our neighbor, but we ignore God, that that's going to be good enough. That's why Buddhism, I have to say, is so inadequate. So inadequate. Um, now, I know this is, isn't PC, right, to say this. Um, and we probably know nice Buddhist people. I do. But Buddhism says that you can ignore God completely and still be a good and moral person. It says it's okay to ignore the first and the greatest commandment, the greatest purpose of our lives, to love God, and just get on with life ignoring him, with your, sitting in the party with your back to him. Um, that is appallingly wrong and inadequate. But you don't need it to be a Buddhist to get it so wrong. People the world over, um, we know, might present themselves as good. Maybe they, they help other people. We, we'd call them good people and yet they carry on their life as if God simply does not exist as if he's in irrelevance it's so easy isn't it to, to tell ourselves we're good enough to be interested in others to be blind to the fact that actually what we've done is sat down right in front of God with our backs completely to him and be totally ignorant of the offense that that has just caused our maker tragically and it is tragically that is why hell will be full of people just like us 
who thought themselves good enough. Well, if loving your neighbor isn't good enough, how do we do that and love the Lord your God with all your heart? Because that's what Jesus said we had to do, right? How do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? What if we turned to religion? What if we became genuinely religious? If we really tried, would that work? This is what the Pharisees did. Now, instantaneously, you'll say, no, 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 that's not right. The Pharisees, they were the bad people. They're like Voldemort. Okay, the evil guys. But that's the thing, they weren't. The Pharisees were not religious professionals. They, were, they weren't priests. They weren't paid to be Pharisees. They were lay people, normal people, who took their faith and obedience to God seriously, so seriously that they made it their life's work. So seriously that they added to the Bible's commands and were seen by everyone else as the good guys. And yet, here's the thing. So they were the genuine, really religious guys. They were really trying. And yet Jesus, I want you to see this, he pronounces seven woes against them. And these seven words of Jesus are very serious, very serious. He's not just saying, you've done wrong. He's saying, you're taking other people to hell. So it's yourself and others. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, and nor will you, you let uh, those enter who are trying to. Now, I want you to hear this. It is straight from Jesus' mouth. He calls a convert of their religion twice as much a son of hell as they are. It's no figure of speech. This is Jesus who will be our judge. Religiosity, Jesus is saying, that which focuses on ritualism and externals, sends people to hell. Okay, You can't get more black and white, really, or more clear. Well, why, why is this the case? Because ritualistic religion makes for insincere worship. See, they had this system, and Jesus speaks to it, where if you swear by the temple or the altar then you didn't have to keep your word. Whereas if you swear by the gold of the temple or the gift on the altar, then you had to keep your word, which is completely ridiculous, right? Because everything in the temple, in fact, everything in life, anything you swear by belongs to God and ultimately will be used in our worship of God. To swear by anything is to swear by God because he's the one who owns it. And then Jesus had this, uh, sorry, the Pharisees had this system of giving. You had to give 10%. The Pharisees made a show of even giving a tenth of their spices, right? So they're taking this law right down to the nitty-gritty, tiny thing. There's this ridiculous image of them picking out one-tenth of their mint leaves and, you know, their, their spices of cumin, okay? And, and they're smug. They think themselves pretty good because they, they tithe a tenth of their herbs, right? But Jesus says, in focusing on all those little minuter, you've neglected the, most, the more important matters, justice, mercy, faithfulness. They are, when you think about it, the components of love. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. They just haven't loved. They're religious, but they haven't loved. This is how most of us fool ourselves, isn't it? We, we, you know, we give a measly $5 to World Vision and we pat ourselves on the back telling ourselves that we're good enough. I gave to World Vision. You know, five bucks. 
as if that's going to cut it. Jesus says, you blind guide, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow this camel. You're happy to take from God everything he gives you, your health, your education, the gifts of friendship, the sun um, which comes down, the, the food that you eat, the love that he surrounds you with. And when you come to giving back, you strain out for God a little gnat, which is not only minuscule, but it's also unclean to a Jew. What you give to God is so small, but it's also not worth having. Now, all this makes us hide behind ritualistic externals in religion. Why? Because um, religiosity, if you like, hides a foul and unclean inner self. It, it helps you to be able to cover up. So the Pharisees are very careful to wash up their crockery really, really well because they wouldn't want to ingest anything that's dirty. And yet their insides are full of greed and self-indulgence. Jesus says, clean the inside first and then the outside will be clean. He has no time, does he, for religious pretense. He has no patience for it. It is false. It is deceptively evil. It is like a whitewashed tomb which looks beautiful on the outside but inside is full of you know, rotting corpses with maggots kind of curling through the eyeballs and you know, dead men's bones. He says, in the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. <sighs> His spotlight is so searching, isn't it? He uncovers not just our private actions, but the thoughts of our hearts. Greed, self-indulgence. He sees us, friends. He sees us on the outside and on the inside. You can't play games with Jesus. What's wrong with ritualistic religion? What makes it so hypocritical? Jesus reaches his climax in verses 29 to 36. What's so fatal about vain religion like this is that it leads to people rejecting God's word to them. That's what it does. Because you can kid yourself, it's all about this stuff instead of listening to his word. He says, you hypocrites, you build tombs for the prophets. You say, if, I, if, if we'd have lived back then, we'd never have killed them. But in doing that, you're admitting that you're descended from the murderers. He says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell because you're the same? You're of their own flesh and blood. You're their family. You're their f your descendants. He says, I'm, I'm sending you prophets and teachers, and what will you do to them? Some you'll crucify. Well, there's a prophecy, isn't it? They'd do exactly that to Jesus. Others you'll flog in your synagogues, which they would do to Jesus' disciples, like Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. Others you'll pursue from town to town, which they did to the apostle Paul. Well, what does it mean to live a good life? Loving your neighbor, but ignoring God, that's inadequate. Trying to cultivate then your love for God through extra religious practices, that's a dead end. What is the answer? The answer is in the part we jumped over at the end of chapter 22. In verse 41... While all the Pharisees are gathered together, Jesus asks them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now that might seem a really random question, but it isn't. You see, the Pharisees are looking for a human figure promised by God in the Old Testament who would come and save the Jewish people, free them from their enemies. They were looking for a human saviour. 
the promised Christ of God. And Jesus raises this expectation with them. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And then they answer him, the son of David. And it's right. This was in line with everything that they had been taught. God had promised King David, 1,000 years earlier, that it would be a son who came from him, who would be the king of God's eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God. The Christ, the saviour, would come from David. The Pharisees are looking for a human saviour, so they give a human answer as to whose son is the Christ, the son of David. A human answer. But Jesus, in responding, then points them in an altogether different direction. Human, yes, but more than that, much more than that. Because when he asks them, whose son is the Christ, and they say the son of David, like so many of the answers, they're, they're right, but they're only half right. It's like people who say, um, you know, who is Jesus? Well, he's a good, he was a good teacher. They're right, but they're only half right, because it's so much more than that. Well, the Pharisees are right because they say, well, the Christ was indeed a descendant of David, and, and that's true. Jesus' family tree makes that clear. But they're only half right because what we really need is not just a human saviour, but a divine one. I want you to concentrate here. The Pharisees say that the Christ, the saviour, will be human. He'll, he'll be a son of David. They're speaking, giving a human answer. That's true. But when Jesus, then Jesus says, how is it that David, speaking by the spirit, that is speaking the words of God, calls the one to come from him, Lord, that is, someone who's divine, someone who's of God. And then Jesus quotes from the Pharisees' scriptures from Psalm 110, written by King David, who said, The Lord, that is Yahweh, God, said to my Lord, that is my descendant, the Christ, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus says, if David calls this future descendant of his, this saviour figure, this Christ, Lord, how can he be his son? That is, how can he be just human? Now, the Pharisees are stumped. Jesus isn't just being smart for the sake of it. He's pointing out to them that the saviour that they are looking for will be more than just a human saviour who will rescue them from his enemy, their enemies and make life good for them on earth. The Saviour has to be more than that. Why? Because remember, the problem is within. Their problem is within. Our problem is within. Um, let's be honest. We know it, don't we? Despite our best efforts, we do not love God with all our heart, do we? Our natural disposition, in fact, is to sit right in front of God and exclude him from the circle. Isn't that right? And then extra human religious practices, they don't help. In fact, they make the problem worse. They create a, veer, a veneer of goodness and religiosity which hides the problem. So when we come to answer the question, what does it mean to, good to live a good life? We've got two needs. Number one, if God is going to accept us, our previous track record of failure and pretense needs to be erased. We need, we need to be forgiven. And number two, our hearts need to be changed from within. And for that, friends, we need not just a human saviour, we need a divine one, one from God. Why? 
Because only a divine saviour can save you on judgment day. You see, um, what use is a human saviour? You know, if you had a human saviour, what use would that be to you on the day of judgment? If you had someone who came and fixed up all the problems in your life and gave you a very comfortable existence and gave you status and security in this life, what good would that be on the day of judgment? You need more, don't you? The Pharisees were looking for that sort of Christ who would solve their problems, who would get rid of the Romans, who'd treat them with the honour that they deserved, elevate them a bit, give them some status, status, kudos, kudos. But they need more than that, don't they? You see, on the Day of Judgment, God will deal with our outstanding issues. He will see the darkness of our hearts. In fact, it will be broadcast for everyone to see. He'll call us to account. You need someone to save you on that day. And the only one who will be effective to do it is the one, in fact, who has the authority of being the judge himself. Only that person who is in the role of the judge can say, you're forgiven, and for that actually to carry weight. You need someone of God, the divine son of God. And then, of course, second problem, only someone who's from God, a divine saviour, can change your hearts to free you not to live just for us, but to live for him. How? Because only someone truly glorious, only someone deserving of worship, in fact, lifts our eyes from our own self-centeredness, cracks open our hearts to focus on him, to live for him. Now, you know where this is going. I'm what I'm going to say, Jesus is exactly that saviour. Yes, he's born into the line of David, but also he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is divine, the divine son of God, the divine saviour who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Let's face it, none of us are good enough. All our efforts, however many $5 we give to World Vision, however many shares we do on Facebook of social justice issues. It's just not going to crack it. However many times we might say, I'm pretty good. We kid ourselves and actually we labour under a burden. A burden. We invent token things to reinforce ourselves, but Jesus says, woe to you if you do that. The Pharisees, you know, they're burdened. They're burdened by this religion stuff. So many rules, so many extra obligations they've imposed on themselves. Jesus comes to set you free from all of that, to take upon himself that burden of the law, and he meets our needs. Through his death for us, he secures complete forgiveness for everyone who trusts in him. And then through that magnificent selfless act, what he does is he takes our cold inconsistent, pharisaical hearts and then he envelops them in his love and he thaws them out so that they crack, so that they can actually see the wonder of his kindness and love and then he sets us free to live for him. Well, where does that leave us? Um, it leaves us with something impossible and something very necessary. You see what's impossible for us. 
you know, after hearing Jesus in these words, the impossible thing to do would be to walk out of here tonight and still think that your outward religious practices make you good enough for God. They just don't. You can't think that if you've listened to this. And therefore you see what's necessary, don't you? The thing we must do, uh, the thing we must do is to open ourselves to listening to him. You know, at the end of this chapter, Jesus doesn't finish it with a righteous, you know, sort of thump in his, ch in his hand. He, he finishes it being quite emotional, not with rage, but with anguish, deep sadness. He's distraught because he's thinking about the Pharisees and he's thinking about all the people that they've influenced in the city of Jerusalem and how the Pharisees have just shaped it so much and born a people of hard heart who are not willing to listen to him. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, this great tender image, but you were not willing you see, under all, underneath all his rage, there is a very strong heart of longing, which longs for people, including you and me, to know God and to be receptive to him genuinely and to listen to him, to come to him and to find him and be enveloped by him. Jesus laments with deep sadness when we do not. And so we must listen to him. You know, we've got to own it, don't we? We're just not good enough. We don't love God enough. And we don't love other people as we ought. And only when you admit it can you accept the good news. Uh, can you hear that the news of Jesus actually is good news? It takes, it takes you to be broken, to think, this is wonderful, that I'm not worthy, but there was one who came to me from God, the divine Savior, and he came amongst us out of obedience to his Father and at such great cost to himself. And he laid down his life to make us right with God. And then we realize, what does it mean to, be, to live a good life? What a stupid question. It's not about us. It's never about us. It's all about him. It's about what he's done for us. You see, he makes us right with God. And therefore, to be good, well, that's not the right category, but to, be, to live a human life, is to live a life knowing Christ as your saviour, the one who's come from God to set you free, to envelop you, his love, his love, the Beatles were right, his love is all you need. Let's pray. Loving God, we have all come under Jesus' spotlight. And if you helped us to listen to you and if we opened ourselves to you, we would have heard 
that we have a deep need for you. And it was so encouraging tonight to hear Lisa tell that she has found you through your son. We pray that it would be true for every person in this room tonight. May Jesus' heart not break in sadness. May he not lament over us. But through Jesus' strong words and his surgeon's scalpel that's cut to the heart, help us to do what's right and to respond by accepting him. The thing we must do, our only saviour, 